And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore the borderlands of digital media, culture, technology, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, we speak with Delhi Beast reporter and author of Off the Edge, Kelly Weil. The people who believe most in conspiracy theories are the people who have experienced feelings of hardship, feelings of marginalization, and people who are looking for an explanation for why the world doesn't feel the way it should. Kelly explores how we arrived at our polarized and conspiratorial moment, ranging from the pre-internet flat earthers to Pizzagate, everything in between, and what has happened since. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe to the Digital Void podcast on your favorite podcast provider now. All right, so I, I want to start by talking about this incident that happened in uh, last summer. Uh, one of my former students, uh, who which was like one of my earliest students who took my influencers class. So I used to teach us like this like YouTubers class and this influencers class of like how to not only use like new media, but like how to become like a social media personality. And she got really good at it. She became like a health trainer and like a holistic like coach. And she, she got a, a pretty big following on Instagram and Twitter. And I think up t- on Twitter, she was like breaching like the 5,000 mark. But then in July of 2020, she saw a video that changed her and changed the way that she started interacting with the public. And it, it was, to me, she, she fell off the edge, you know, so she, she changed in many ways. So we're, I'm really glad to have you, Kelly Weil, here to talk about your book, Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. So thank you so much for being here because I want to talk a lot about this. Oh, thank you for having me. So what causes, I, when when this happened, it, it made me pretty sad. This is a student who I admired a lot and I was really proud of her work. She's now banned from Twitter. Um, she started falling into this space where she was very much into the the pandemic video. And then she started following and believing the Wayfair conspiracy about Save the Children. And I started thinking about vulnerability. What happened in July of 2020 that you've noticed and you wrote about that shifted in our world? Oh, man. You know, listening (laughs) to you describe this trajectory, it sounds like two dozen people I know who got into the health and wellness sphere and um, ended at a place that was not quite well. July 2020, man, that is a that is <laughs> a a notable time. And one thing I talk a lot about in my book is that conspiracy theories um, are not some weird belief that only certain people are susceptible to. We all have parts of our brain that are um, vulnerable to conspiratorial thinking. I would even say that sometimes the impulses toward conspiratorial thinking can be helpful. We are a species that looks for patterns and meaning, and conspiracy theories often happen when we misfire. We take it in the wrong direction. Our suspicion works against us. And so in July 2020, <laughs> we were uh, we were so far out from vaccines, so far into this pandemic, People were not feeling so hot. Uh, frankly, no one is right now either, but di- di- different phase. 
And people were really looking for explanations, uh, looking for comforting voices, people who would tell them that what you're perceiving isn't actually true. There's another reality. And for, I think, a lot of people, that was a very alluring message. And so it was very easy for people to go from saying, why am I feeling this way? Why is this happening? To accepting an alternative theory of the virus and then going from uh, alternative health influencers to other conspiracy influencers. So you mentioned Wayfair. Mm -hmm. That, of course, is the the theory that uh, children are being trafficked under the guise of expensive furniture from the furniture retailer Wayfair. And that was just everywhere. That was all over the internet using many of the same channels that spread slightly easier to believe conspiracy theories like things about um about COVID-19. But it seems like and this is where it was like it was sad to me because I, I remember I posted right after the pandemic video had come out and it was so slick and it was such a clean looking documentary. And I saw it immediately and I had friends texting me all over and being like, have you seen this? And I was like, trust me, it'll be, this is going to be banned very soon. And I rem- I made a note and said, I think people what people like my my former student were craving. And she actually liked that tweet. It was probably the last time we ever interacted because it was by the end of that week that she took a leadership role in that false reality. Like she was just like, well, uh, this this sounds like such a, a pleasing thing. You, you write a lot about, uh, later in the book, you write about like how social media itself is kind of like built with this reward system. Do you think that posters, I guess, uh, people who are using the web, like they kind of figured out that if they picked this reality, it was more rewarding than staying to the side of uncertainty and being like, don't worry, it'll get figured out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's a very perverse incentive scheme built into a lot of social media. Um, and I think that goes for believers as well as um, influencers. So on the lower level, you have people who can buy into a theory and get that immediate gratification of having an explanation or of feeling on the inside of a movement or having a community built around them. That's one level. But then I think when you get to people who are actively promoting these theories, who are influencers, who are starting to get a paycheck from this, you really start to see how social media elevates those narratives. They play very well on social media, on sites like YouTube, on platforms like Facebook, because of course all of us, even the most skeptical people, are drawn to that weird scintillating thing. I mean, I don't believe Flat Earth at all, but I will watch Flat Earth videos all day. (laughs) Love them. Um, And so so on a site like YouTube, for example, for the longest time, Flat Earth videos just got skyrocketed to the top of the recommendations because – even if YouTube's programmers aren't flat earthers, they are trying to get the most views. So their algorithm, deliberately or not, will prioritize videos that are going to be really grabby. They're going to pull people in. And so they're going to give a boost to conspiratorial content. Now, some sites like YouTube have uh, tailored their algorithm after years of complaints about them and tried to downplay these videos. And that's worked to an extent. But the latent interest in power structure is still there where even without an algorithm uh, artificially promoting conspiratorial content, it sells so well that if you're kind of a believer, why not become an influencer? That's 
already sort of how the internet works even outside conspiracy worlds. Oh, what a good point, right? Like where you could see control and then you could see you could take control. Like why why not if, if, if the feedback loop is supposed to be that? Uh, uh, that's that's really, really important. And, and, in, on, and the sad ending to this is that it became pretty extreme and eventually Twitter did ban ban her, her speech because it was pure uh, false information. And it, what you said just reminds me, like, first, I want to compliment you. Like, the, the first part of your book is, is such an excellent history. I learned so much about, like, the origins of flat earth theory. So to, to, to take it back, I had no idea how many different, I don't want to say variations, but were you surprised by, like, how many different starts it had and how many different paths it took before it reached kind of like it, it had these gaps, but then it rebirthed into our present. Did, were you surprised at how much you learned about how many pieces of history are attached to this? Oh, absolutely. And by the way, thank you for that. Um, but what I loved about tracing Flat Earth's history, which um, for folks who aren't aware, is when I talk about Flat Earth, I talk about a movement that started actually in the 1840s. It wasn't really popular before then, contrary to all these ideas that Columbus believed the Earth was flat. That's not true. Um, but what amazed me, looking at each iteration of the Flat Earth movement as it kind of rose and fell over a, a century and a half, is that you can sort of see the same characters emerging in all these iterations. They are people who are looking for sort of a leadership position. Some of it is a little more cynical. One of the earliest flat earth promoters was kind of a, uh, almost a proto Alex Jones, right? Where he had his uh, snake oil thing. He, he sold like basically uh, Dr. Pepper and said that it was the cure all to everything. And um, once the dividends from that stopped coming in, he pivoted to flat earth. So it has been interesting for me to see how these, um, how these tropes vary and are actually quite similar too from the 1800s to 1900s to now you start to understand how they take shape and frankly how they might uh emerge again in the future something that i th i took away from that was um something you mentioned about how paying attention to the flat earth conspiracists or conspiracy theorists gave them air and kind of created some sort of validity to their situation, even though it was something that seems so unbelievable. And that seemed like a bit timeless too. I feel like throughout all of these different periods from the 1840s through Robot, Roboten, right? is that his name? Yeah, I, th I think Robotham. I've, uh, I've been consulting with, uh, with the Brits about it and there's some, <laughs> some discrepancy, but I've been saying Robotham. <laughs> I think that that was an interesting thing where Robotham like was kind of feeding off of the the reporting. And so he, he didn't have to say anything real. It was just the fact that it became more, he gave it more air. And I think even in, in the book, you mentioned how much that's kind of like part of how this works. Like in order for these things to exist, it's kind of like they have to be spoken about. The, the more we bring presence to them. Do you, do you feel like that validity is a responsibility of an author to, to do? And I, I know you mentioned later, not to spoil the whole thing, but it's like, I know you mentioned that Talking about this is really important, but how, how do you feel as the as somebody who spent so much time digging so deep in this research about validating some of these beliefs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very important. And I think it's a tightrope I've walked in my uh, general reporting. I'm normally a reporter at the Daily Beast. And in this book, how I like to approach it is 
is reporting simply amplifying a theory, just you know, poking fun at it, or is it trying to get at the foundations of the belief, how it affects the believers? I, I believe it's always negatively, um, and how those beliefs can destabilize this shared reality that we should all be feeding into. Um, and I think, I, I think holding conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists to account is very important because people will always believe, believe these theories. You mentioned your former student and it doesn't sound like she got into pandemic via the news media that happened somewhat organically. It had a huge organic spread. So it's important that we understand these, um, these conspiracy ecosystems and what could potentially pull people out, what makes them believe in them. So that's why I feel very driven to keep reporting on the subject. But there is absolutely the flip side of it, right? Where these theories do require oxygen. And you mentioned uh, Samuel Robotham, who is kind of the originator of flat earth theory. And he was in the 1850s. He totally got how this game was played. He was inviting people to his flat earth speeches to argue with him because he knew he was a really good debater and he knew he could just run circles around these people. He knew that people would show up for the spectacle and that a good number of people every time would actually convert to his belief or just give him money. So that was worth it. And I think we have to consider how much of our coverage these days is trying to explain the uh, the motives of belief and how much is just feeding into the circus. Right. Oh, he would have been quite a YouTuber. Oh, man. Oh, man. In some ways, I'm like, stay buried, man. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, he seemed to have figured out that that uh that model very early but the the concerning thing is like how how it metastasizes and and becomes kind of cancerous there's a set there's a quote in here that shocked me i like flew off my chair this this character i think it's shenton that said uh humanity has been brainwashed by science into round earth theory and that that sentence was incredible because it, it reminded me of like a Morton Joe in, in Mad Max, which is like, don't go, don't get addicted to water. You know, like <laughs> it's, it seems like somebody who says brainwashed by reality, just kind of, or brainwashed by science is very clearly fighting against like an objective reality with like coming across that has to be like some sort of like shock to the system from somebody who like kind of adheres to a sort of objective reality that we conceptually agree on yeah absolutely and you know that that is a shocking quote that that uh that fellow um samuel shenton he was actually he was so good at quotes he had one when um astronauts first orbited earth and that really it seemed initially to puncture a hole in his theory and then he said something like well we're not mad about it we're not sitting here crying about it and it sounded like that drill tweet to me like don't print it in the newspaper that i got angry um but that's a digression i just think he's he was a poster born before his time but you see those words almost exactly um before shenton who was working i think in the um, the 1960s and also today a lot of flat earthers today understand that they can't outright bash science but what they will say is we don't believe in scientism. Their idea of scientism is um, science believed as like dogma, which is not how anyone practices science at all. But because 
that's how they can frame it. That's how they can elide this idea that they're completely throwing the scientific method out the window. This is a bit of a digression, but do you think some people have um, an immunity to that type of thought process? I remember in, in college, somebody tried to convince me we were friends for quite some time, but he tried to convince me that Atlantis had floated from the Mediterranean to Cuba, and it is Cuba. And I was, I was like, okay, well, that's, thank you, <laughs> have a good one. But I think that is that some sort of like, do some people just can't they can't get into the conspiratorial belief, or is some people are some people just very open to the idea that science is scientism and you have to believe in science? That's what he said to me. He was like, well. I was like, that's not true. It's it's just not possible. There's facts. And he goes, well, you believe in facts. And I was like, whoa, I never was really encountered the idea that there's a belief in a fact. I, I think that's very interesting. And, you know, it's interesting to consider who might be more predisposed toward conspiratorial beliefs. There have been a lot of um, a lot of studies trying to find like uh, through lines and conspiracy believers. And while there might be uh, variations between certain people, like I'll just say I've always been that annoying skeptic who's arguing with the astrologers at the bar. I'm very, very boring in that respect. One of the better predictors for who believes in conspiracy theories is people who have good reason to. Um, There's a fascinating study out of, I believe, the University of Florida or Miami, down, down that way. And what they found was that the people who believe most in conspiracy theories are the people who have experienced feelings of hardship, feelings of marginalization, and people who are looking for an explanation for why the world doesn't feel the way it should. So that's not necessarily uh, the case for every single person who believes in conspiracy theories, but especially for um, for groups that have legitimately faced um, repression, who faced hardship, it's easy to turn those real grievances into broader nets of suspicion. Um, and I think as much as, you know, I can laugh at flat earth being ridiculous, you do have to take into account the flip side of why might someone distrust institutions? And I think that's um, that's something that a lot of people are grappling with more now that we're seeing uh, things like mass vaccine hesitancy is what we have to think about. Why exactly do people resist this medication, even though science shows that it's helpful. Certainly, I think some people are more drawn to the conspiracy worlds, but often I think there's a reason. You mentioned that the common thread is marginalization and oppression. And pre-big tech, it was easy, but not quite as easy to target knowingly marginalized and oppressed groups and the ease of which these systems can propagate and spread information is way easier and way more insidious for the right people or the propagandists or and conspiracy theorists to target, especially in places like Facebook groups where I know that you've spent a lot of time. But to tie this into the grift, once you're a true believer, you write that you spend money on the product, uh, flat earthers buy conference tickets and t-shirts, and all of this ends up funneling back to big tech. Is there a point that you notice in this reality where the truth is less profitable than fiction, where it becomes evident that there's a crossover moment between the truly insane and far-fetched 
and the point of belief. Right now I'm thinking about how it seemed slightly too extreme for a mainstream public to accept that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta were running a sex trafficking ring in Comet Pizza, but serious enough that someone drove a car to shoot a gun there. But downstream from that is the Wayfair conspiracy. And it's so clear that the roots of the Wayfair conspiracy can be found in Pizzagate. So where do you, how do you see the interaction between the originally extreme belief and the downstream of publicly acceptable belief? Yeah, I think that's a that's a very um, a, a very present ecosystem right now. And you know, you you mentioned big tech and big platforms, and what I was thinking about when you were talking about that was um, one of the top selling books on Amazon right now is a an anti vax anti Fauci book by Robert F Kennedy Jr. and that takes a lot of narratives that have been floating around the far right for quite some time, be it both um, anti-vax sentiment, which until recently I think was quite a bit more fringe, and also these anti-Fauci narratives, which I watched them emerge uh, in far right telegrams, you know, early days of the pandemic. And yes, he has always been a scapegoat for people who oppose anti-COVID measures, but some of this just outright vitriol, I don't think was quite so accepted in the mainstream until it had a friendlier, more publicly agreeable face like an RFK Jr. to promote it. So I think a lot of these ideas are percolating and they're just waiting for the right intermediary to bring them into the public sphere. And now I'm thinking about... um less big tech, but more big media, we have like a, a Tucker Carlson, who was always the first one on the Fox News to pull something that had previously, the day before, had been a um, a white supremacist meme on 4chan. And he and his, his writers are plugged into that. And they'll put just the veneer of acceptability onto these theories to make them viable in the public. So that is how you go from Pizzagate, which most people would not believe at face value just because of the luridness, the absurdity of it, to Wayfair, which you had teens promoting on TikTok because, well, isn't it just mild enough? And I think there was a lot of deliberate and also unconscious experimentation in the conspiracy world to see what plays. And you throw enough at the wall, something will eventually stick. Yeah, there's something important about that. You, many times, journalists as yourself, uh, our buddy Ryan Broderick, you write articles about some of these incidences that you notice, and it's like the day later that the sites are taken down or the pages are missing. And they, it's always this note where it's like, this didn't really have anything to do with your writing. It was something that we just noticed. It, what you just mentioned is like, reminds you of like how sometimes a bank will hold on to your money to the last minute because they're collecting interest on it. Does, is the value of these pages being up more valuable to social media and the destruction of like our unwinding of society? Is that more valuable than the protection and like the ability to take these pages down? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, it's difficult for me to find the exact point at which moderation outweighs the need for 
free publication. I think part of the reason I have a somewhat libertarian outlook on this is because when I see these measures being taken against harmful content on the right, I see them used in equal or sometimes greater counterbalance against the left. And you don't always notice that as much in the U.S., um, although some groups on the left have faced it, but you see it um, internationally. You see these tools of uh, of moderation used against marginalized groups abroad. So that is one reason I'm a little cagey about the about the use the ban hammer on everything strategy. That said, very often removing this kind of content works. Um, I remember when Alex Jones was removed from most major platforms and I want to say 2018, 2019, it's been a couple years now. He was on his show saying, this is just going to propel me into stardom. This is going to make me the martyr that I always knew I was. And it didn't, you know, that man's star has fallen. And it's not just because he's getting sued by his ex-wife for forgetting his children's names. Like it's, it's, it's because he can't get his message out, message out as effectively. Now there is a parallel media ecosystem on the far right, but studies have shown that people don't really flock to those in great numbers. People do want to be in that public sphere where everybody is involved and they can bicker with the left. They can get their content amplified. So it's a difficult line. I think my easiest answer, and I also recognize that this is a little bit of a cop-out, is I say that I would like these platforms to, at the very least, stop artificially promoting conspiratorial content, to make sure that their algorithms aren't promoting Flat Earth just because they know that Flat Earth is going to get more views, right? That, I think, is the, the really harmful element of social media that has never existed before, that didn't exist in newspapers or radio. But after that, Everything is, to a certain degree, a line call. You do need moderation. There are things that cannot be on the internet. There's, you know, child exploitation material. Of course, you have to bring that down. Like, everybody does agree to a certain standard of moderation. You just have to decide where the line is. And boy, howdy, do I not like being that person. There's a really tricky moderation line because it's not clear oftentimes to the public and oftentimes to the platforms themselves um, who is an authentic human being, who is a bot, and who is part of a troll farm. And there is a very famous case study of the Russian Internet Research Agency and how it influenced the 2016 election primarily on Twitter and Facebook. But I think the dominant narrative or the forgotten narrative is that the Russian Internet Research Agency never went away and, in fact, is responsible for spreading vaccine mis- and disinformation campaigns domestically. Can you detail what the IRA's role is, what it's done uh, from its troll farms and black voter suppression to its recent Vaccinate Us campaign and how platforms are grappling with this? Oh, absolutely. So the IRA in Russia is a, um, as you called it, it's a troll farm. It is a um, sort of like a, a, a an anti-influencer sphere where they set up pages and accounts that mimic accounts in foreign nations. So they will have accounts posing as um, liberatory Black organizations in the U.S. And they will also make counter pages 
claiming that they're like a, a Texas secessionist group or something like that. And what they do is they post inflammatory content that can then be shared organically throughout the U.S. social media ecosystem. What they've done with what's called the Vaccinate Us campaign, this actually predates COVID, is they went through and they posed as Americans on Twitter and they started seeding all this anti-vax propaganda, which then was organically retweeted and promoted by American Twitter users. So this is a really insidious example of inauthentic social media use. Um, it's they're often not bots. They're often, you know, paid people sitting there, you know, typing away like uh, my name is, you know, John Smith. And I, I believe in seceding from the U.S. and uh, not taking vaccines. And they will then count on those narratives finding a home in the U.S. So that's something that Facebook and Twitter have tried to crack down on simply because it, it's a pretty clear-cut case, I think. It's not a real user. It's someone posing as a user for malicious intent. But yeah, that's that's active. And Russia's not the only one doing it. There are uh, Iranian troll farms. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I would not be at all surprised if there was a, uh, a U.S. parallel. But you know what? That's, that's me being a conspiracy theorist. Um, so yeah, that is one of many ways that social media can be manipulated spread conspiracy content yeah and it's fascinating to me i'm sure the united states is doing it as well <laughs> but it's fascinating to me um how the united states might be doing it domestically and how it might be influencing not just a new generation of grifters in the united states people like dc drano but a legion of followers who end up buying into the grifts that are started internationally, right? So we've seen anti-vaccine prop propaganda. We've seen misogynist, hateful campaigns over the last few years. But but can you see a, a pipeline or a connection between how a topic trends on Twitter, um, whether it be a few years ago with Pizzagate and someone like Jack Posobiec picking up on it and a new generation of conspiracy theorists and extremists? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think with a lot of conspiracy theorists now, they're very proactive because in the Pizzagate era, that that was kind of a an early version of the sorts of conspiracy theories that we see now. Um, it was it sort of offered a very comprehensive schema. It was further reaching than something like birtherism, which only alleged a specific thing of uh, Barack Obama saying that he was born in Kenya. That's false. But Pizzagate alleged this network it had throwbacks to the satanic panic. Um, and I think people on the right realized that that was a very viable and a very emotionally stirring sort of conspiracy theory. And theories like that have since become something of a, a blueprint for how these beliefs can be crafted and rolled out, frankly, on the internet. Um, Pizzagate it, it had its very early origins on a cop forum, and then it just exploded all over um, the ecosystem of far-right blogs to Twitter. And now nowadays, I think the pipeline is even shorter. People know what works 
when it comes to conspiracy theory, and they have telegram networks ready to push it out. There are YouTubers who are just waiting for some theory to come out so that they can make a video on it, whether they believe it or not, because as we mentioned earlier, there's money in being a conspiracy influencer. So I think the economy, both in in literal uh, monetary terms and in, in more figurative terms around conspiracy theories, has clicked into place since 2016 and people are ready to roll when they get the signal that something new is coming. Yeah, you mentioned this a, a fair amount of times and I think this is something, I mean, even our projects based on this is like one of the, I think, vehicles that they hint upon and you, and you mentioned is martyrdom. You know, it's it, it's the, the assumed victimhood, the assumed I'm being persecuted uh, for my beliefs system. I think that is what the switch is that you're talking about. That's that's what's been monetized. As far as we can tell, that's been monetized more than anything else in the recent past, that the more you could per be perceived as the victim, and this is, I think, Trump leads this as kind of like the, 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 the form factor to kind of mold from. And, and it's so different than like maybe where in the past, this wasn't as much as the thing. I, I, there's, when, when talking about martyrs, I remember there's this like church in Rome, which is just painting after painting of these Christian martyrs and everyone were being killed by these Romans and they just hold these placid faces. And it's kind of like, well, they just take it as a, a sign that they, their belief is stronger than having emotions. And now it's kind of like, you mentioned it's it's gotten very loud. And I, I, I would love for you to explain like, not just how it's gotten loud, but this this term that came up called uh, flat smacking, which was the, <laughs> the way in which um, online personalities have used their loudness to do this. Can you can you talk about that? Sure. So flat smacking is a uh, it's a newer form. It's a very online form of um, evangelizing flat Earth. It's very confrontational in a way that previous iterations of flat eartherism weren't. So flat smacking is when you go out in public and you just start heckling strangers. You go and you start pestering your Applebee's waitress because you know that she is being paid $5 an hour to be nice to you and saying, have you ever really, have you ever really seen the earth's curve? Think about it. Think about it. And they're filming these poor people. And someone says, well, I don't know. I've never really given it much thought. And they say, aha, now, now we've got you. And maybe some people genuinely do get into flat earth over it. But what it does is it makes content. It makes content online of flat earthers being loud and being seemingly pretty confident and their um and their conversation partners being like, well, I don't know that. I don't know how fast the earth is going around the sun. I don't memorize statistics. And it makes this kind of affirming video for people who want to believe, for people who are now viewing this as a team sport and cheering one side against the other. And it's a... I don't quite want to say sociopathic, but I also sort of do. It's it's antisocial, yeah. but that often plays well on social media and flat earthers know it now. Yeah, that's the model. Like if you can uh, make a lot of noises and then get in trouble for it, that's even, I think that's just as important, you know. Pete. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. My, <laughs> my, my, one of my favorite flat smacking videos, which I talk about in the book, is um, one of my flat earth uh, I'll say buddies in quotation marks, uh, goes into a Starbucks, starts heckling people, of course gets thrown out. And he's sitting outside the Starbucks being like, 
guys, I am just shaking right now. I'm shaking. You can't even ask questions in a Starbucks. I'm like, Nate, it's because you're being rude. <laughs> it, it doesn't have to do with flat earth. It's just a weird thing to do. So it's, um, yeah, it, 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 the, the confrontation and the martyrdom really does help sell those videos. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Then, so that brings me to, I think, the most endearing and sad chapter of the book, the one just titled simply Mike. Um, this story I know is close to you, and I know that this is the the, the crux of the this. It's your book starts one of the most interesting, most beautiful opening sentences uh, that leads up to this chapter, and I would say this is like where everything connects in, in such an important way. Can you tell us about Mike Hughes and how how close you got to this story? Yeah, so um, Mike Hughes was a stuntman for a lot of his life. He built race cars and did evil Knievel stunts and um, was a cool guy, kind of an oddball character, but someone that I genuinely really liked. He uh, became involved in Flat Earth Theory. He had this idea that he would make a, um, a steam-powered rocket, and then when he got high enough, he would deploy weather balloons that would take the rocket so far up that he could actually see the curvature or lack of curvature of the earth and he could take a picture of it and that would be proof either way it was it was weirdly scientific it was um it it was weirdly uh accepting of the scientific method in a way that i think a lot of flat earthers aren't um but mike was reckless with a lot of his tinkering. Um, he did a lot of steam-powered rocket launches that weren't high enough to see the curvature, but he was doing them to set records or he was being paid. He often had uh, flat earth decals on his rocket, and I know he raised quite a bit of money from the flat earth community for that. In February 2020, he was doing a launch for a TV show. I know that his heart wasn't really in it, is what multiple of his friends said they said he wanted to get this launch done and then he wanted to go to space um and the morning of that launch there were a number of things wrong his friends told him you know let's just hold off let's skip this one he launched anyway his um his rocket hit a, a snag on the launch pad his uh parachutes came out and they destabilized it and he he died. I mean, he just um, he went up too fast and couldn't. Uh, we theorized that he blacked out, couldn't deploy his uh, parachutes on the way down, and you know, died instantly. Um, so, yeah, that that was. I've been talking to Mike since I, I first met him in twenty eighteen, and it was upsetting to me because. This was, this was something you could sort of see coming, and you, it, it's sort of a joke until it's not. Flat Earth is funny until something really, really bad happens, and I wasn't close enough to Mike that I, I. I think I could have talked him out of it. He had good friends who say none of us could talk him out of it. But having watched this unfold over a couple years, it was pretty rough. Um, and so it went from reporting the story about an aspiring rocketeer to 
going and doing a bit of the um almost like the information autopsy with his friends and family saying what did he believe how did he get into this beyond the uh beyond the interviews I'd previously done with him and there is some controversy over whether he was a real flat earther his publicist said no he was in it for the money um his friends said, no, we're not flat earthers, but we could not get him to stop talking about this. Um, I, I think I have the answer in that one of his friends said he kind of took it as a joke at first and looked into it enough via all these uh, convincing flat earth vi videos because he was al always a bit of a conspiracy theorist. He looked into it enough that he did actually take it to heart by the end. But... <laughs> Regardless of what he actually believed, he was pursuing these launches in the name of Flat Earth. He was trying to go to space so that he could get that photograph. And I think what's so upsetting to me is that it was in pursuit of a lie. He's a, a good person and he should be here today. Yeah, it really is a it's a loss. It's a it's a very good chapter to learn about this story. I I have this awful sense about what media does to us. I remember actually feeling pretty sad that day and thinking about how many layers had been involved to make this happen. The, the sci-fi channel doing a show, the internet being this amplification platform. And then the other thing, which was the, the tip of the iceberg, which is mentioned throughout, which is that this is a, this is an entry point to a rabbit hole for many people. You know, it's this by falling into flat earth or any of the conspiracy theories, you're also falling into like what Anna Merlon says is the conspiracy singularity. You know, it's kind of everything kind of becomes one conspiracy at some point. Do you, do you see this on the horizon? Do you feel like these these doors are are just the beginning or are people pretty good at seeing the difference between something that could lead them down to the pretty dark place of the internet or things that we might feel as like, something jokeable but then it it's kind of like oh it's more lighthearted than it is real oh i think those doors have definitely opened even in the course of my reporting this book um when i first started looking into flat earth theory i think it was something more distinct online i think those communities were a little bit more of a bubble unto themselves and a lot of the flat earthers that i met in the 2017 2018 era got into it via things like YouTube. They would be watching videos about outer space and they'd see a recommended video about Flat Earth. They weren't getting into it via QAnon. These days, I think there has been a lot more confluence of those ideas or even a reversal. Um, a major, extremely anti-Semitic QAnon telegram leader um, is a Flat Earther now. And I think he got into it vice versa. He got into the... Uh, uh, the, the satanic pedophile cabal, whatever theory, and from that was fed flat earth. There's a lot more crossover. And whereas I used to find flat earth Facebook groups a bit more fun, they were a bit more, uh, I want to say on topic, you know, we'd have, mm -hmm. there's debates about why people stay on, on the ground. Is it due to buoyancy or is it due to infinite acceleration upward because gravity doesn't exist. You still see that on flat earth pages, but there's a lot more, um, 
it's it's a broader theory and like Anna Merlin says it is becoming the conspiracy theory singularity where when you believe one of these theories you probably believe a lot more of them <laughs> I was just going through my uh, screenshots folder the other day and I, I saw one that I took from this group and sh- just said global what was it? Globers equal Antifa. <laughs> it's like, Jeez. so it's like, we've got a lot of stuff going on here. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was, it was just, it was so simple. It was two words. And it's like, wow, there are so many layers to unpack in that, to have arrived at that conclusion. And also that I understand what you're saying. <laughs> that's, you know, that's not good for any of us. Um, but yeah, I do. I do really believe that, uh, maybe due to the uh, the influencer economy that we were talking about where it does benefit people to promote multiple conspiracy theories at once or to the receiving end of that where if you're into one theory, then you're going to get fed another, that people are mainlining multiple theories and they're holding them compatibly. So what do we do? You, cut, you come home and your family member is starting to dabble in flat earth. What do we take? What do we, how do we talk to them? Well, that, that is really <laughs> tough. I would say for both of your benefit, um, book a nice vacation to a beach and watch the sunset together. It's, um, it's genuinely like, yes, you need a vacation one. And two, I mean, that is an instance where with the evidence of your own eyes, you can see the edge, the edge of the earth and the sun curving down around it. It's something that people have been able to do for millennia. And that's the easiest proof that you can really have of the earth's shape. It's also very hard for flat earthers to debunk that. But it's I understand that leaving a conspiracy theory isn't just about getting that one debunking fact. So I've talked to a number of people who specialize in um, in exiting this kind of relationship, be it conspiracy belief, be it cults. And one thing that I've heard again and again is while it's difficult, it makes sense to broach these conversations with respect, Um, not to treat them as a debate where you're scoring points, but to frame it in in a narrative of trust and care because you are only engaging in this argument because you do care about someone and you want to be there to catch them when they fall out of this theory because it's a little embarrassing. And another thing that um, one psychologist told me is point out places where the conspiracy theory has failed them. If there have been prophecies about, um, you know, this political figure is going to be arrested on this date and, um, you know, this savior is going to rise up on this date, well, that thing didn't happen and that thing didn't happen. And how do you feel about those failures? Are the people who are promoting them, are they looking out for you? So those are things that can help, but it's very hard to just prescribe one thing that works because the reason people are looking for these beliefs is because they want to believe them. They want the security and the the answers that come from these theories and the influencers who promote them. So I wish I had a better answer, but in that's great. In lieu of that, it's what I got. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a great answer. We we found that compassion. We spoke to David Nywert last year uh, about red pill, blue pill, and uh, it was very it was very compassionate 
to know that we have to be listening. And I think that's one of the things in the end is that we, you remind us through this book that these are people, you know, these are, these are still people as people can get hurt. People who, who are, you might be joking at these theories, but they're, these are humans behind it all. And, and I, I really, I, I took a lot away from feeling very good about knowing people's names and knowing who like talks about these things online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it's, hard even as a journalist to be I think I don't know to be cruel when you know these people and you've spent a lot of time with them and even if you disagree on the most basic facts of the world which we do I mean these are people who I I wish I could reach out to better right well, I think this is one of the best parts is that this book gives us the opportunity to learn about these this theory and like in depth. And uh, really, I I enjoyed it. I, I have to, I I mentioned this to you offline as well. This is a page turner. Like I was I was very immersed in it. So I'm excited for this to come out. So Kelly, thank you so much for being here with us. The book comes out uh, February 22nd, I believe. Where can people find out more and learn about you and learn about your work? Um, I am way too on Twitter. So if you follow me at Kelly Weil. Uh, I'm right there. Um, and the book is available for pre-order everywhere now. Um, get it at your favorite local bookstore or, um, or, or use that Amazon box that's allowed too. Uh, so I'm, I'm very online. Reach out, say hi. Uh, happy to talk Flat Earth. Excellent. Yes. And definitely pre-order. I know that helps to get this book on the shelf. So please pre-order this book. Thank you again, Kelly. Thank you so much. Kelly's book, Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything, is available at your favorite local bookseller. For more information about Digital Void, including our latest projects and upcoming events, visit digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon.